Wherever you're listening from, please join us in acknowledging that so-called Australia always was and always will be Aboriginal land. Sovereignty was never ceded and this podcast was made on stolen Gadigal land. And just quickly, we're about to talk pretty openly about drugs with all the language and experiences that go with them. Let's jump in. This is your brain on drugs. Trying to cover it up just like they are lying about the drugs. Parents who use drugs have children who use drugs. MDMA, cocaine and GHB. Drugs are menacing our society. Family that gets high together gets by together. Drugs are for idiots and I'm never going to be that person. If everyone took acid on this planet, there would be no war. To stop taking the pills. I'm sure that other people might have done it and may not want to say it. Welcome to our first ever podcast of... The Sesh, lighting up the conversation on drugs. We're your friends here at Dancewise, smash stigma, share stories, and talk facts about drugs. First ever episode. Yeah, pretty exciting. Yeah, we are um, coming to you from our very luxe podcast studio here in my living room. It's a lovely <laughs> rainy day outside, so it is nice to be in here recording. It is. It's nice and cozy, and we are... Look, we're giving it a red hot go. Yeah. Yeah. We don't know what we're doing. Is this thing on? Our, um... um um it is oh, it sounds ridiculous it's podcasting my name's gina by the way i am one of the coordinators one of the three coordinators at dancewise new south wales and i'm sitting here with the lovely adam yeah also one of the coordinators at dancewise new south wales i love your outfit today me and me and adam decided to coordinate our pants today just matching you know, checkers yeah matching checkered black and white pants just because it's really important what you wear on a podcast. Yeah, I did also choose to wear my weed leaf shirt, forgetting that I had a um, uh, lunchtime meeting with my ex-boss, who's a little bit more, say, straight and narrow than I am. Oh, I love that. The shirt also, just for everyone listening, is with a combo fluffy red, like, crop jacket, which is just, like... It's a look. Dope, yeah. <laughs> it's like harm reduction professional look is what we're going for. That's it. Professional drug user. That's, yeah. That's how I like to describe it. Professional myself. drug user. That's it. Well, today's episode, before we ramble anymore, is the sesh on psychopharmacology with Dr. Rob. And we'll be playing back some audio from a live stream that we did over Facebook in June last year with the amazing Dr. Rob Page, who's a big um, friend of the program, a doctor and GP in Sydney. He's currently in training to become a specialist in drug and alcohol addiction, and he does a lot of awesome work in this area. Yeah. Um, Adam, you had the opportunity to post that chat with him back yeah. in June. So you'll be hearing a bit more of my voice throughout this podcast as I ask Dr. Rob, or relay Dr. Rob, some of the audience questions and questions that our community submitted. Yeah, it's a really good deep dive into kind of the nitty gritty on a whole range of different substances. Rob gets into the um, yeah, the psychopharmacology of it. So How they work in your brain. How they work in your brain. The drug nerd stuff. What they stuff. do. Yeah. What they do. It's good information. If you're someone who uses drugs, is curious about drugs, or pretty much anyone I think should know this kind of stuff. Yeah. It has pretty broad implications about how your brain works, even if you're not on drugs. All right, let's get yeah. into it. See you on the other side. Gotcha. My name is Adam, and I'm one of the Dancewise New South Wales coordinators here. And our wonderful speaker is Dr. Rob Page. Rob, would you like to quickly introduce yourself? 
Hey, Adam. Yeah, thanks for having me. Uh, so, yeah, Rob Page is my name. I am a medical doctor. I'm a GP uh, in Sydney, and I'm currently uh, training to become a specialist in uh, drug and alcohol addiction. Awesome. Uh, very grateful to have you on board. Um, for the sake of time, this session is just going to focus mostly on four substances, MDMA, ketamine, GHB, and nitrous oxide, also known as NAMES. Rob will give an overview of the pharmacology of each of the substances and then get to some of your questions. To ease us into this very complex topic, I'd like you all to just drop one word in the comments that comes to mind when you think of this topic. My one, uh, I think, would be neurotransmitters. Uh, Rob, what would be your word on this topic? Yeah, that is a good one. Uh, I would say probably complex. Um, it, like getting into the nitty gritty of it, it really gets kind of complex, but hopefully can simplify things somewhat for everyone. Fantastic. Um, so I believe the first drug we're going to talk about is MDMA. So take it away, Rob. That is correct. Thanks, Matt. Um, so I guess before we get into these specific drugs, um, brief, brief primer. You probably all know about this, um, but just as, as Adam mentioned, neurotransmitters is mainly what we're talking about today. So drugs work by acting on receptors in the body, um, either directly or indirectly. And the effects of psychoactive drugs uh, are experienced because of the impacts of uh, those drugs on receptors on nerve cells, uh, typically via neurotransmitters. Um, so there's about 86 billion nerves in the human brain um, and nerve cells are distributed throughout the body and they can be as small as like less than a millimeter and the longest nerves are even longer than uh, a meter. And the way in which nerves interact with one another and other cells in the body is tremendously complex. Um, and we won't be going into it today, obviously, but it's, it's mediated through these neurotransmitters, these chemicals that act between nerve cells and other cells. So most substances, as I said, impact levels of certain neurotransmitters. The main ones we're talking about are serotonin, which you've probably heard of. Um, so that's the one that's typically thought of as impacting people's sort of moods and energy levels and people's sociabilities. Uh, dopamine, uh, which is the uh, neurotransmitter that's most typically associated with sort of the reward pathway, making people feel good. But drugs that stimulate dopamine production are also typically the ones that are the ones most associated with formation of dependence. Um, noradrenaline, which is associated with sort of alertness and feeling awake. Um, these, these are really, really broad, obviously, but just for simplicity's sake. And there are some other um, neurotransmitters that are less well known, but that are important. So uh, GABA, uh, NMDA, and the cannabinoid receptors and the opioid receptors. Um, and so the drugs that we're talking about today will impact some of some of those receptors. So I'll crack on and we'll, we'll start talking about our MDMA there now. So MDMA stands for 3,4-methylene-dioxymethamphetamine, really, really long word, uh, but MDMA is much simpler. Um, it was invented about, actually over 100 years ago now, so by a pharmaceutical company called Merck back in 1912. They were trying to figure out how to make a, a new type of medication that would help people's blood to clot if they were bleeding. And um, they put together a whole bunch of molecules. MDMA was one of them. And apparently they just shelved it for a period of time there. And, did a few tests on animals back in the 1920s, didn't amount to much. And then, weirdly enough, the next documented use is the US Air Force giving it to folks back in the 1950s. Um, recreationally, it started to be used from the 70s or so and then um, became reasonably popular. But then the war on drugs really started to crack down, uh, became illegal. And so it's uh, obviously an, an illicit drug there. Um, it's the third most used illicit drug in Australia. Um, you can get it in, as you probably were, tablets, capsules. Uh, powders, crystal form. Hopefully there's a picture that can come up 
somewhere on your screen now um, that someone can put there. And it'll show you some various formulations that MDMA can come in. Um, so yeah, it's, it's an illicit drug in Australia, but uh, and it, way back when it was initially used for um, forms of psychotherapy, but recently there's been a resurgence of that over the past decade. Um, phase two trials overseas, so human trials have been completed and published and, and there are phase three trials that are ongoing and they're showing significant evidence for effect in treatment of um, conditions uh, like PTSD, uh, so particularly psychotherapy with MDMA for PTSD and, and showing some really promising effects there. Uh, in terms of um, exactly what it does, uh, uh, the, the MDMA stimulates both release uh, and it, it stops the reuptake of serotonin within the connections between nerve cells. So you get a buildup of serotonin there and has, has the actions of MDMA. So that's a, a psychostimulant effect. It makes people feel awake, makes them feel like they have energy. Uh, it also has intactogenic effects or empathogenic effects. So make, make people feel like sociable, uh, want to connect with one another to enjoy tactile stimulation. So enjoy sort of being, being touched um, and, and those types of effects. It, it does have a, a smaller effect on uh, dopamine release and noradrenaline release. So you get that sort of that positive, um, uh, enjoyable euphoric sensation of it and the alertness of it as well. It sort of peaks after about 30 to 60 minutes or so if you have it uh, orally, uh, shorter if, if people snort it. Um, sorry, it begins after 30 to 60, 30, 60 minutes, sorry, uh, and shorter if you snort it. Our peak effects at uh, about 70 to uh, 120 minutes and lasts for four to six hours in total. Um, so, yeah, it gives people a sort of sensation of euphoria, empathy, uh, heightened sensations. It's reported as having mild hallucinogenic effects. Most people don't really report those, but it's more of a... Um, I suppose people describe a, a, a change in the, the already experienced sensation. So it, uh, enjoying enjoying music more and sort of enjoying uh, lights and lasers and these sorts of things more. Light, lasers and lights and sparkly things appear prettier and brighter, although are they true hallucinogens is arguable. In terms of, I guess, um, undesired effects, uh, it causes undesired, not so, not so much undesired, but other effects are things like dilations of pupils. People end up with big, big fat pupils. Uh, you get a, a fast heart rate, your body temperature increases. Uh, people start to sweat, they might grind their teeth, and it can be quite hard to fall asleep while it's acting because of the stimulant effects. Um, in terms of more serious side effects, it only really rarely, rarely leads to dependence. I mean, I've been working in the drug health field for like six years. I think I've seen one person who's ta been taking MDMA every day for periods of time. It just kind of, its effect just kind of burns out and people stop getting the positive effects and just get adverse effects. So very rarely do people end up taking it each day. Um, and Otherwise, though, in terms of serious side effects, uh, we're talking about the things that hopefully people have heard something about, the, the overheating side effects, the MDMA toxicity side effects, and the possibility of something called hyponatremia. So particularly in higher doses, um, people are, are likely to uh, develop overheating. And then if you overheat and you're sweating heat for a long period of time, you might dehydrate. And that overheating and the stimulant effect can compound and eventually, essentially, your body temperature just gets so high that your your brain cells in your nerve really, really can't survive under those sorts of conditions. So much of the harm that happened related to MDMA at the festivals in uh, in uh, in Australia sort of over the last couple of years was, was related to that. There's another particular type of reaction that can happen to M uh, M MDMA. Um, which is called SIADH or hyponatremia, but essentially like to put complicated words into something a bit simpler. Um, essentially your body ends up, you end up with too much water on board relative to the amount of all the other salts on, on in, in your body, particularly sodium. So your sodium concentration falls 
and that can cause really significant brain damage if it's not identified and managed really, really early. So it can be quite dangerous. Um, the other thing that it can cause is, is serotonin syndrome, which is a which is a rare condition where uh, the amount of that serotonin stops being regulated by by your body, gets out of control, and that causes similar effects to hyperthermia, so that overheating uh, experience. But but also uh, along with um, with tremors, it puts you at risk of seizures, and people can become quite confused and agitated and behaviorally disturbed. Um, so these are the the types of serious effects now. But obviously. Not everyone experiences those, and 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 many people will sort of say, "Look, okay, so how do we how do we stay safer? How do we reduce the risk of having those effects?" And some people, unfortunately, it's really rare, but some people seem to have this particular idiosyncratic reaction, and it's probably related to the way in which your body breaks down MDMA. Some people's um, ability to metabolize the molecules doesn't seem to be as good as others, and, and unfortunately, there's not really a way to figure that out um, before the fact. Um, but it, but in in a general sense the higher the dose you take, the greater the likelihood of um, experiencing serious side effects or, or any side effects really. And in particular, if you don't watch your hydration and your and your heat. So um, if you are getting really hot and if you're not hydrating well, then you're, you're just, gonna, just gonna get cooked essentially, um, literally, unfortunately. Um, the, the, there's some really interesting studies that I'll send some links around afterwards around, around giving animals, so giving rats, those of MDMA in quite high doses and if they put them in a, in a warmer environment and stimulate them uh, walking around or running around a lot they're much more likely to suffer harms and die than if they just keep them with the same dose in a cool environment in which case they don't really seem to suffer too much harm at all and if you look at the big medical studies they're doing over in the uh, in the United States they're giving people sort of 120 180 milligrams of MDMA in these studies in cool and controlled environments and they haven't had really serious adverse reactions in those, and they certainly haven't had any deaths as far as I'm aware. So it's a sort of drug where there are potential risks of really serious harms, uh, but they are related to dose effects in the environment in which people take uh, in which people take it. Um, I don't know, do any, do any questions come up there, Adam, from your point of view? Um, that's sort of a brief overview. Yeah, that's a fantastic overview. Um, we've had a couple come through, and um, we've got one from Lachlan asking, is it true that people who become quiet and focused on MDMA might have ADHD? That's a really good question. I mean, um, yeah, so ADHD, um, attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, um, it's a, it's a, a complex condition that um, was probably underdiagnosed back in the day and, um, and they're sort of trying to establish really clear diagnostic criteria about why some people have difficulty um, focusing and concentrating or might have uh, difficulties with with being hyperactive and uh, having lots of energy and uh, needing to I guess um, uh, keep, keep busy doing things in order to stay focused and um, psychostimulants so certain types of amphetamine type molecules or other stimulant molecules seem to help people with ADHD uh, maintain focus and so I've, I've had quite a lot of patients over the years actually particularly ones with ADHD who say look I whenever I use speed or um, so various types of meth so whether they be powdered speed or um, crystal ice um, or who use MDMA uh, get more focused. Look, it's it's not something that's been well proven. It kind of makes sense, right? Like MDMA is just, it's another type of amphetamine. It works differently to your, your, your straight amphetamines or your methamphetamines, uh, your straight methamphetamines. Um, but, it, but it makes sense to a certain extent. As far as I'm aware, they haven't done the studies, but it's, um, it's a really good question. And I guess as the research on MDMA uh, expands, maybe we'll find out more about it in future. Yeah, definitely. Mm -hmm. um, also, we have a question from Jay asking, is there much interaction between MDMA and modafinil? 
If not, what would your informed opinion be on this combo, especially regarding anxiety and psychosis? Yeah, um, that's it. Yeah, that's that's uh, another thing that I I have some info about here in terms of. I guess that sort of kind of broadens the the question around um, drug interactions, right? So we know that MDMA and other other substances typically will have certain other things that they interact with, um, and uh, there are potentially really risky interactions for uh, for MDMA and for other psychostimulants. Um, a particular type of antidepressant medications might cause serious interactions or increase your risk of serotonin syndrome. And there's great uh, resources out there that I know that DanceWise are all, all about stuff like um, Tripsit. And there's actually a paper that came out this year that explores really all of the sort of pharmaceutical interactions, but also interactions with um, MDMA and other illicit drugs. So with sort of cocaine and methamphetamine and alcohol and, and, uh, and all sorts of substances. And I'll post that as one of the references. But with regards to modafinil, so um, if, if we're talking about interactions with other sort of um, stimulant uh, drugs, the, the risk typically would be of uh, an increased risk of things like serotonin syndrome and potentially an increased risk if you're having quite high doses of, uh, of things like sort of psychosis and agitation. But I think, um, look, I'm gonna look into it for you because I'm not sure off the top of my head, I could fudge an answer, but I think in a general sense, if you were taking really high doses of MDMA and modafinil, it might put you at risk um, of having, yeah, like those stimulant combination type reactions where you get sort of agitated and yeah, heart's racing and people become a bit confused and delusional and they can develop serotonin syndrome or increased body temperature. Um, if you were taking high doses, I would always provide the advice as I would with any any substance use or any combination of drugs, just yeah, like use smaller amounts, particularly if you're trying it for the first time um, of, of both substances. Um, yeah, it's, it's safest not to use anything at all. And if you're using it, it's safer to use smaller amounts and to wait for the effects to come on before you, um, before you try adding anything else in, because you can always put more in, but you can't take it out once it's in. Indeed, that's always a very good point. And we also had a comment from here there just saying yes, that the heat makes everything worse. And this is particularly true with MDMA. It's one of the main risks, as you mentioned. No, cool. Thanks, mate. I'll, I'll crack on the kid. There's one other thing I wanted to say. It's another excellent study. Apologies if you like you, you hate sort of, I don't know, the sort of big, big nerd study stuff. I love it. So you're going to get a bit of it. Um, a, the, a great study came out by Amanda Roxburgh this year, um, looking at all of the MDMA uh, deaths in Australia between 2000 and 2018. Um, I'll post the, the reference for that as well. There were 392 deaths that were related to MDMA, so where people died and MDMA was found in their system and it was thought to be um, contributing in some way to their death, so it wasn't necessarily the primary cause. Um, but in uh, one in seven of those out of 392, their deaths were, were just due to MDMA toxicity alone. But interestingly, I thought about a third of them uh, were due to accidents, mostly car accidents, while people were intoxicated with MDMA. So that's one thing I guess we don't think about or maybe talk about so much, but that's like quite a large number of people. That's more than 100 people over the last couple of decades that have died related to MDMA use in, in accidents. Um, so you just think about other ways to stay safe if people are taking drugs. Um, so yeah, ketamine, uh, it's a drug, it's a thing. Um, it is a drug that doctors uh, administer to patients um, in emergency departments, uh, not infrequently, that ambulance people uh, give out to people, particularly if they've had like dislocations or, or fractures and that sort of thing. So yeah, it's an analgesic and anesthetic drug. It's frequently used in Australia and around the world. Um, discovered back in 1962, 
uh, it actually took over from from angel dust so fencyclidine PCP as a, a dissociative anesthetic that's the class of drug that it belongs to so it provides um, sedation and amnesia so it makes you forget what happens while you're on it uh, and pain relief but also dissociation this sensation that sort of people's minds slightly separate to their body and it has a minimal effect on breathing and sort of the standard doses that are used so it's really like cool to be relatively safe used in the short term for management of medical issues. Um, Non-medical use became more widespread in the 1970s. Um, it's typically found as a crystalline powder, uh, so really, really fine crystals. So it looks like a powder, but they're actually fine crystals, um, or as a, as a liquid. Um, when it's used recreationally, it's usually snorted. Obviously, it, it can be injected, but I certainly would not recommend um, injecting the stuff that's circulating on the street because, I mean, yeah, medically we use it because we know that it's pure um, pharmacologically manufactured ketamine, but it's always difficult to know that what people are actually buying on the street. Um, injecting is uncommon recreationally. It can be swallowed. Um, it does undergo what we call first-pass metabolism. So um, at least part of it, if you swallow it, gets broken down by your liver uh, before your body, it has before it actually has a chance to be, be active in your brain and in your body. So if people swallow it; it's it's less effective compared to if, uh, if people uh, inhale it. Um, and the effects typically begin within about ten minutes if people snort it, about thirty minutes if they have it orally, and usually asks for sort of four to six hours or so if people have it orally. In terms of how it works, so this is one that works on not those sort of big big standard three neurotransmitters um, that we think about, serotonin, dopamine, noradrenaline, it actually acts on a, a slightly different receptor um, called NMDA, um, as N-methyl-D aspartate or aspartic acid, I think it is, um, receptors. So it's in terms of how that neurotransmitter works, it's slightly more complicated, um, but NMDA receptors are found all through the body and it's... Um, it's a uh, excitatory receptor. So if, if an NMDA receptor is um, activated, it'll make those nerves more likely to fire off with less stimulus. So conversely, if you do what ketamine does and you switch off that receptor, or if you block that receptor, those nerves are less likely to be activated. So they sort of get, get calmed down and suppressed somewhat. So that's why, that's how um, ketamine has most of its actions. Um, However, it does have certain other actions uh, that are more complex. Um, it, it allows your body to release endogenous opioids. So um, you're probably aware of opioids. So opium, the opium poppy produces uh, opium, which uh, goes into the body and acts on uh, opioid receptors. But your body actually has its own naturally occurring opioids. And some drugs will stimulate your body to produce those. So um, ketamine stimulates that. Uh, and it also acts on dopamine and serotonin receptors in smaller ways. In terms of what it does, it makes people feel unsteady, wobbly, unbalanced, uh, dissociated, as I said, so feeling out of body, being aware of sensory experiences, but they feel slightly apart from them. People um, experience distortions of self-perception, so like in terms of the difference between the size and shape of your own bits and pieces, your hands, your feet, uh, your body, or the things around you relative to the size of your body. Um, and it obviously gives you reduced sensitivity to pain and that analgesic effect as we discussed. Some people um, report hallucinations. Again, it's the sort of thing where most people experience visual distortions. They, they see things, but they see them differently. But people frequently report that when they close their eyes or they're in a dark room, they see sort of fractals and patterns. So those types of hallucinations. Um, and obviously it does help people to feel sedated and to sleep. Um, in, in greater doses, it can leave people completely unconscious and unresponsive. 
um, in really, really high doses. I mean, it can lead to people dying, but um, it's, it's, it's really, un it's, it's, it's not a common thing to see. Um, however, if it's combined with other drugs, um, particularly other sedative drugs, uh, alcohol, benzos, so Valium, Xanax, Rivotril, those sorts of things, uh, GHB, that'll dramatically increase your risk of having an overdose and having serious and bad things happen to you. The other thing is even if you're completely unconscious with it um, and you don't stop breathing, you still potentially run a risk. Like if you have a lot in your tummy, for example, and you have a vomit and you're uh, unresponsive, you might might choke on your vomit. So um, it can be dangerous in, in high doses if people are completely unconscious and unresponsive. Um, in terms of side effects, like it might seem a little bit unusual, but it actually causes your heart rate to speed up a bit and cause your blood pressure to go up a bit. Just and it's complex mechanisms underlie that, but it's um, it's slightly different to some of the other sedative drugs out there. Um, it can make people feel sick in their tummy when they're when they're on the come up. Uh, it can lead to self-harm. So if people are sort of a bit wobbly, a bit unsteady, they might sort of inadvertently hurt themselves by like falling over, stacking it, falling through a glass door or just braining themselves if they if they land on the floor. Um, and rarely there've been cases of people like feeling so unusual when they are on it that they that they freak out and they um, and they they hurt themselves or they um, try to take their own life. It's extremely rare, but some people, as with any psychoactive medication, can respond in unpredictable ways. Um, so it's always useful, I think, if anyone's taking a substance, particularly for the first time, to try to ensure that they're doing it in a in, in a safer location, but ideally with someone around who's straight and sober and who can, I guess, just watch out for those potential risks. It'll leave people feeling quite reassured. Um, in terms of long-term use, this is something that there's been a bunch of questions actually submitted online. Thank you for those. And I'll, I'll talk a bit about those impacts of longer-term use. Um, it can cause things like impaired memory with heavy frequent use. Um, poor ability with complex tasks, so it does impact the way people think. It can cause um, uh, paranoia and delusions, so things like it's kind of like psychosis or, or schizophrenia type reactions. It's not common, but it, it can happen. Um, but the, the thing that most people ask about is about bladder and urinary tract damage, so this well-acknowledged thing that ketamine causes irritation, inflammation and uh, damage to the, the wall of the bladder and to the urinary tract. Um, I think there are a few specific questions, weren't there, Adam, on that, along that line? Yeah, we've had a couple. Um, two of the ones submitted earlier you've sort of touched on a little bit. And one of them was, why is ketamine dose sensitive? Yeah, no, um, good question. I mean, it's it's um, it's not specific to ketamine, although different people respond to different drugs in different ways. Like any drug, typically, if you have a little bit, um, then uh, it'll have a smaller effect than if you have a big bit. But some people say, look, I have grams and grams of the stuff or I like smoke a heap of weed or, or whatever, I, I drink heaps and I never get pissed, I never get stoned, I never get high. Um, and we don't really know why that happens with some people, but the vast majority of people, certainly in studies that have done on people and on animals, um, yeah, these things are dose sensitive. It's because the action of any substance, whatever it might be, if it's sort of like psychoactive drugs or, or sugars or like even even water, um, it depends on how much you have in your body and the concentration in your in your bloodstream, in your body, and and through the rest of your tissues. And so, for a psychoactive drug, it's how many molecules of that drug are there in a certain volume volume of your blood, um, because it's the amount of molecules that are there that are acting on your uh, neurotransmitters and receptors that'll dictate how effective a drug is on your what what effect it's giving you. So, if you have a higher dose, you'll end up with a higher concentration in your blood, um, or your or what your other bodily fluids where it might be active, and then uh, the higher concentration leads to a greater action of that drug. Indeed. Um, we've had a commenter, Jay, ask, why don't we focus on set and setting in a hospital setting? 
being that Kay is issued so frequently. I've had two friends have traumatic experiences in hospitals due to dose and no psychological support from hospital staff. Yeah, it's, an, it's a really excellent question. Um, yeah, thanks, Jessica. That's, that's a great question uh, because it's not just with ketamine. I was reading another study today um, about nitrous. They use nitrous in dentist chairs, right? Um, still, like, nitrous is used fairly frequently medically and in hospitals for when we were pregnant. And nitrous can make people, some people, um, experience sort of unusual sensations, distortions, illusions, um, changes in perception. And there have been quite a number of cases where people have, like, really freaked out in nitrous or thought that something was happening to them that, that wasn't actually happening to them and and a large amount of that is because you're on a, in a really scary setting already and if you're not trying to calm things down through whatever it might be lighting music uh comfort from people around you you can potentially traumatize people and the thing that holds true i think with with ketamine i mean you're in a sterile really bright lit um crowded noisy emergency department i mean it like from the point of view of potential risks of um, challenging experiences on a substance you couldn't line it up really any worse than that could you um, so I, I, I agree I think that at the very least you'd hope to um, have someone well counseled beforehand and, and good clinicians will will do that um, I mean I, I think a, a part of it would would be resourcing like the ability to necessarily control all the things you need to control set and setting in an emergency department will be challenging but I agree like more effort should definitely go into counseling beforehand seeing if something can be delayed until someone has someone next to them that they feel safe with um adjusting the lighting if possible arranging it so it's in a quieter location if possible i mean i, I agree they're things we should be thinking about definitely um so approaching the roughly the halfway mark in our stream now we do have a few more questions on ketamine um one of the ones submitted earlier was what's your take on the claim that drinking green tea can help reduce the bladder issues for ketamine users I really like this one actually because it made me go out and um, read a whole bunch about it. Uh, and yeah, the, the person really kindly linked to a to a study of all things, a 2015 study uh, called "The Protective Effect of Green Tea Catechins on Catechins Catechins." Don't know how you pronounce it on ketamine-induced cystitis in a rat model. Cystitis is inflammation of the wall of the bladder. Um, so there's this well-recognized uh, condition, as I said, where people take ketamine and it can lead to bladder uh, wall inflammation and to urinary tract damage. And they've done a lot of studies on it, but it's really hard to figure out exactly how frequently it happens and what dose you need to take with what regularity you need to take it. We know that more frequently people take ketamine, the more likely they are to have this happen. But the challenge is when people come in with this condition, um, it's all reliant on self-report in terms of knowing how much ketamine they've actually had over their lifetime. Some people say, yeah, look, I've used a, several grams a day for the past whatever period of time. Some people say, oh, look, I've only taken it once in my life. Um, so it's quite difficult to get a handle on the threshold that you need to actually get um, ketamine-related bladder issues. They did a, a, another big study in uh, internationally recently where I think they established that about a quarter of people who use ketamine regularly experience some form of symptom related to their bladder, um, usually just sort of feeling like they need to go to the toilet more frequently than usual, doing wheeze more frequently. And um, so it's it's well recognized and occurs with a certain amount of frequency. Um, and the only way to really reduce your risk is to stop using or to reduce your use if you are using with regularity. So lesser use, uh, frequency and amount reduces the risk. Now, green tea, this, this uh, study that they did, they um, injected rats with uh, ketamine, and then uh, some of them they injected with uh, placebo and some of them they injected with this substance, so this substance called EGCG, uh, which is epigallocatechin gallate. Sorry about my pronunciation. It's thought to be the um, 
the the component of green tea that has the most biological activity in terms of um, getting rid of oxygen radicals and and the other positive impacts of of tea. So they gave them injections of these substances. They followed them over a month after giving them ketamine, uh, and the ketamine dose that they gave the rats was like an equivalent. If it was the equivalent dose per weight in a human, they'd be giving them two humans two grams a day um, uh, each day for a month injected. Um, and the uh, green tea supplements, uh, they gave them a certain amount of those per day. And the ones they gave green tea to had much less bladder irritation, bladder symptoms, and problems when they did the, the tests on the way that their bladder worked. So there was evidence of a significant protective effect of this particular green tea supplement. And it was a really marked effect, actually, in that study. I was, I was really surprised when I, when I read about it. Um, in terms of what that means for human though, humans, though, it's always really difficult to say, okay, we've got this animal model and it shows this quite positive effect. What does that mean for human beings? I did some rough calculations today and I guess keeping in mind that physiology of humans and rats are different, I just did a bit of sort of like dose weight calculations today and I figured that in order to have the same amount of green tea, uh, uh, that particular component of green tea into a human body, if you're having it orally per day, you'd have to have roughly, I think, five to 30 grams of that particular chemical and so green tea isn't just that chemical so you'd have to figure out how much of your green tea was that stuff and then add another extra bit of weight on but also if you're having it as green tea itself the egcg breaks down pretty quickly in high temperatures or if it's not stored well so are you actually going to get enough of that chemical to give you a protective effect look i'm going to say green tea is delicious um if you want to drink it every day and hope for a protective effect i think there's very little risk of harm probably don't smash supplements enough so that you end up with huge amounts of caffeine and your heart's racing because it'll probably make you sick for other reasons. Um, but yeah, look, it, it might give you a protective effect. We don't have enough scientific evidence to say that it's going to work well in humans. Um, but hopefully, again, at some stage, we'll get to the point where we have more research data around that. But yeah, no, if you want to drink green tea, go nuts. It's delicious. Awesome. Um, so we're getting quite a way through the stream now. We've got quite a lot of questions coming through. Um, yeah. We're trying to get to maybe two more before we move on uh, to our next drug of focus. Sure. Um, we've got a question in saying, are there adverse effects of entering a deep K-hole other than psychological harm? Uh, that's, a, that's a really good question. Like, because so, a bunch of things come into my mind when I think of that. It's like, um, I suppose, how deep would be one thing. I mean, it, if if it isn't impacting your respiratory drive and if your oxygen levels are staying okay, then you're not going to be having damage to your brain from decreased oxygen levels because that's my immediate first concern, I guess. If someone's really, really unconscious, are they breathing enough to keep oxygen going around in their brain? So um, that, that aside, are there going to be immediate effects? I mean, the effects of ketamine on people's brain um, they seem to be sort of from prolonged regular use. That's the sort of decreased mental sharpness and decreased issues with memory and, and potential for delusions and that sort of thing. That's usually prolonged regular use. A single deep sedation from ketamine, I'm going to say as long as you look, don't quote me on this, but as far as I'm aware, as long as your oxygen levels are being maintained away, you're not choking on, like not vomiting, you're not choking on your tongue, you're on your side, you're safe, you're not being physically harmed. I, I don't think that it's likely to have significant adverse effects but at the same time keeping in mind like the people that i'm thinking about that are in the that deep states with ketamine are having their oxygen levels monitored and that's a sort of like i'd be like wanting to see an oxygen monitor on your finger while you're in this deep k-hole just to be sure um so yeah like i'd i'd be really cautious just keeping in mind if you drop your oxygen levels it can cause damage to your brain and other other cells in your body 
But if you're sort of being more protected, if you're taken care of in that way, then I think in and of itself, it's it's not probably likely to do other immediate, like direct ketamine-related effects on your brain. Copy that. Um, we'll do one last question if we can get to it quickly, and that is why shouldn't I use alcohol and ketamine together? Mm. Yeah, like I'm really glad that someone asked that um, because it's like, yeah, it's a relatively common drug combination. I mean, yeah, the most common combined drug in Australia would, would be alcohol. Um, and it is largely because of what I just spoke about there, just like ketamine can be like really heavily sedative, but it usually won't affect your respiratory drive too much um, at the sort of doses that people typically use. Um, but if you're combining it with other sedatives, you run the risk both um, of um, stopping your, your your body from breathing altogether, like going completely unconscious, stopping breathing, and then that obviously you will either suffer brain damage or die. Um, or it might just fill your stomach up with alcohol. Alcohol will make you want to vomit after a while. And if you're so sedated on ketamine that your body isn't going to respond to the reflexes that would make you move when you um, when you vomit on alcohol, uh, then you're just going to vomit and block your airways up with vomit and, and suffer really serious harms related to that. So... So, so that's why it's a sort of thing where, look, yeah, I'd, 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 I'd always advise mixing against mixing sedatives if possible. But the same thing, like if people are going to be doing it, then minimizing amounts wherever possible and just trying to make sure that there are other people around that are straight and sober to keep an eye on you. Um, you, you don't want someone laying on their back if they've had a bunch of ketamine and alcohol. Um, it's a recipe for disaster. Definitely. I think that's really good advice. Always look after mates and start low, go slow, as things mm. are always like so maybe let's move on to our next drug, and that is nitrous oxide. Mm. Yeah, nitrous is really interesting. Um, so been around for a really long time. Uh, it was synthesized in the late 18th century, first of all, 1772. Um, and that was just by a chemist. They didn't realize it had psychoactive properties as far as we're aware. But then a, a bloke called um, James Watt, uh, who's like yeah, a famous um, inventor uh, and one of his colleagues in the late 18th century, um, they experimented with inhaling and sort of through the early 19th century, people began um, essentially just having parties and um, and hitting nitrous bottles hard and laughing at one another. Um, and then they realized after a period of time, it was sort of the 1840s, 1850s or so that had anesthetic properties so that people uh, wouldn't experience pain while they were on it. And they started to use it as an anesthetic during, for minor and even more major uh, surgical procedures. And even to this day, it is still used, um, as I mentioned, in dentistry procedures, in pregnancy, uh, during childbirth, uh, nitrous is used. So it's like really well acknowledged that um, used for short periods of time, uh, it's really a very, very safe medication um, in, under, under appropriate conditions. In terms of how it works, um, this is another drug uh, similar to ketamine uh, that stimulates um, that those endogenous opioids to be released. That's that's one of its actions. So in the in the brainstem, some of the the nerve cells there, um, it stimulates the body's natural opioids to be produced, and in a complex way that we don't fully understand, modulates the body's experience of pain in the spinal cord and in the brainstem. And so, interestingly, um, if someone has uh, if someone is using nitrous for pain relief and you give them an opioid antagonist, so you give them Narcan, you probably wipe out their um, their, their pain relief effects of the uh, of the of the nangs of the nitrous. Um, the anesthetic effects, though, the the fact that it sort of um, puts you to like has the effect on your conscious state and can put you to um, just about put you to sleep, um, are due to inhibition of NMDA, again, similar to ketamine, that sort of um, settling down of the stimulatory effects of, 
of nerves there. Um, and it probably has some effects on dopamine and noradrenaline as well, but we're not entirely sure. Research is ongoing in that. Um, that's how it works. It comes as a gas, it's inhaled. I, one, one interesting thing I found out today, those little eight gram canisters contain about 3.5, about three and a half, between three and four liters of, of nitrous um, at whatever the sort of like standardized measurement is, um, I guess at sea level. Um, so yeah, three and a half liters or so is what you get in there, uh, which means that like, yeah, sometimes I see people cracking nangs uh, uh, at, at events that I've been to and they're just like inhaling them straight out of a nanginator and I would like, I'd strongly urge people please like um, both put a filter over the end of your nanginator because um, it's got like oil and tiny metal shards in there often and also put it into a balloon first because if you're putting it straight into your lungs, um, it can do significant damage because it's going in there, in there under pressure and it's straight, like it's a decent volume, right? So you don't want to just pop a lung because you've put it straight in there. Um, in, in, in other, like, uh, otherwise though, Adam, I think there are a few questions about potential risk of harm um, in terms of like uh, what it does from a desired effect. It makes people sort of feel lightheaded, heady. It makes them laugh. It can make people go completely unconscious. Um, people uh, experience often a sort of euphoric, uh, enjoyable sensation and it will give people a sense of forgetfulness for those few minutes. But in terms of undesired effects, I think there were some specific questions around those, weren't there? Yeah, um, one of the main ones was, do nangs put holes in your brain? Mm. Uh, second actually related one was, how bad are nangs to your brain? It seemed to have yeah. a <laughs> <laughs> And there was, a, there was another one that I liked as well. When it comes to NANGs, how many are too many consecutively before they are no longer deemed safe? Um, yeah. Which it's, yeah, uh, I, I'm, I'm not going <laughs> to give a specific answer to that because it's not not possible to. Um, but yeah, in terms of do NANGs put holes in your brain, like it, often these, these questions go around, like it used to be angel dust. Angel dust puts holes in your brain. And it's like, well, no, these drugs, like they don't actually like put little air holes in your brain. Um, but the thing that nitrous was found to do when they gave it in really high concentrations to animals, it causes these little changes in nerve cells called vacuoles where you might usually have sort of tight and connectedness of cells and you end up with these um, areas where there's just essentially just a little collection of, of, of fluid or um, of uh, tissue that wouldn't, wouldn't ordinarily be there. And maybe they're the sorts of holes in brains that people are talking about, but the types of the amount of nitrous that was given to the rats to cause those vacuolar reactions, we're talking about like giving it to them on a, 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 the equivalent on a mask for sort of hours on end. And when that was done for short periods of time, it would, um, the, the, those effects would be reversible to a certain extent. If it was done for prolonged periods of time, for more than a, more than an, uh, a certain period of time, I don't remember exactly what it was, the, the the damage to nerve cells in the brain would be wouldn't wouldn't be reversible. So it really is again just about um, not using too much all at once for prolonged periods of time. In terms of exact amounts, it's it's again really really difficult to say. I think um, if you're going to be using enough to cause that direct damaging effect uh, to your brain, we're talking like really quite heavy use, like sucking back one nang in a balloon. Like it's not going to be the amount that's going to have that sort of effect on you, but those types of effects, effects where it's going to be damaging your brain through either um, the direct effects of the nitrous um, or through other means. We're talking like heavy use. We're talking sort of consecutive nangs one after another um, for, for those types of effects without getting enough oxygen in your blood again. Um, I think that's like there are a few mechanisms by which 
NANGs can cause, nitrous can cause damage to nerve cells. One is via just that sort of direct mechanism that it seems to have on the, on the nerve cells, which I think would be relatively rare. One is via low oxygen levels. So some people will just sit there huffing away on a balloon and not breathing in between. So essentially just breathing in, breathing out, breathing in, breathing out, breathing in, breathing out, breathing in, bit of nitrous, but in the end, you're just breathing in mostly probably your own carbon dioxide and no oxygen. And like, yeah, I'm going to say that I'd, I'd strongly recommend not trying to enhance a drug effect by dropping your oxygen levels. Like it's going to get you in trouble and um, it's yeah going to be potentially significantly harmful. Um, so yeah, try to make sure you have enough oxygen levels in your blood. Um, the other thing that NANGs can do to your brain and to other nerve cells is that if you're inhaling nitrous oxide, even in small amounts, it does something to a type of vitamin that exists in your body called vitamin B12. Um, now, vitamin B12, um, also known as cyanocobalamin, I think the oral form is like hydroxocobalamin. Um, essentially, it's like it's a, a vitamin that's really, really important for a number of things. It's important for DNA synthesis, as you're probably aware, DNA is pretty important for life um, and also for the formation of the sheaths around nerve cells called myelin sheaths um, and so long story short you have a bit of nitrous in it'll deactivate a few molecules of vitamin b12 but if you've got enough on board you'll still have enough to do the things that vitamin b12 needs to to do but if you have lots and lots of nitrous even in one session if you don't have much vitamin b12 but for prolonged periods of time you end up with no active vitamin b12 and that leads to your body not being able to Treat, uh, to look after its own nerve cells as well as it should and not being able to uh, synthesize DNA as well as it should. And it can actually lead to really, really serious nerve problems. So it can lead to uh, brain damage, to psychiatric issues. Um, so uh, like delusions, paranoia, hallucinations. Um, so like psychosis type symptoms. Um, but more typically it'll cause weakness to the nerves in the legs. So people will sort of come in with a bit of a wobbly gait. They won't be able to sort of feel things very particularly well. Um, they'll be unstable on their feet. The reflexes will be shot in their legs. And um, I've, we've had three people come through the service that I work at over the last 12 months who've been using nitrous really heavily. We're talking like sort of 200 to 300 bulbs a day. Like, um, and they've, they've experienced this. And unfortunately, like, I mean, a certain proportion of the time the damage is repaired when you replace their B12 and stop using, but sometimes it doesn't. And, um, and so you end up sometimes with people in wheelchairs because of these damage to not just your brain, but to your peripheral nerves. Um, so I think the takeaway from that would be that if you are using nitrous, yeah, like make sure you're having enough, um, make sure you're having enough oxygen, please. Um, try not to use them every single day. If you notice that your use is escalating and you're struggling to stop, like seek help, talk with a friend, talk with someone at NUA, get linked in with a GP or a drug health service. Hopefully you've got someone you can talk to who's reasonable at discussing these things with you. Um, put them in a balloon. Um, if you're going to be using them, like, I think really with any regularity, take vitamin B12 supplements. You can get oral supplements. And um, if you're using heavily, it might not be enough. But if you're using small amounts, it, 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 it'll, it certainly isn't going to do any harm and it might help significantly. And if you're getting any sensation that your changes, like that your, your balance or your, you're having numbness in your feet or you're a bit, bit wobbly when you walk around, like make sure you see someone because the worse it gets, the, the least, less likely it is that the changes can be reversed. Indeed, yeah, those are some amazingly good and refreshed tips there. Um, I think our final question on nitrous is, why does nitrous oxide enhance psychedelic experiences? Uh, yeah, this, this was another question that made me do some, do some reading. Uh, so it's a good one. Uh, so um, 
psychedelic, so you, which we're probably talking about like um, experiences with your classical psychedelics. So um, like psilocybin um, and LSD and uh, and possibly DMT and these sorts of things. Um, so those um, those molecules typically act via mostly via a serotonin recept a receptor activation and sometimes specific types of serotonin receptor activation. Um, and many people, particularly with things like um, DMT, uh, will experience, um, actually, sorry, I'm getting myself slightly confused here. Um, most people who use um, psychedelics will experience, if they're having a psychedelic response, will experience some sort of change in uh, perception. Um, and I would argue, well, I, don't, I don't think this is really really known particularly well um but i would say that it's probably because nitrous oxide um and other things like sort of ketamine they have this dissociative effect um they have that effect on the nmda uh receptor um, and that causes dissociation of mind and body and i would suggest that if you're having a psychedelic experience where you're having all these sort of like changes in perception and um the ways that you're thinking and then you are dissociating your body from your mind um it is likely to significantly enhance that just because um, you, you're kind of somewhat disconnected and you're also having the stimulation of all of those psychedelic um, uh, pathways or experiences or however you want to describe it at the same time. It's not something that I'm aware of being well studied. Like I had a bit of a look through the literature and I couldn't find anything else about it, but that's my theory. Combination of dissociation of mind and body with the psychedelic experience probably enhances it significantly. Sure, that makes a lot of sense. Um, so I think now we'll move on to our final drug that we have uh, to talk about tonight, and that is GHB. Hmm. Yeah, G. Um, it is. Uh, it's a naturally occurring chemical. We've all got G in us, right? At this point in time, uh, in almost undetectable amounts, but there's a, a GHB receptor in the um, and in the brain in the body, and there's naturally occurring uh, GHB that's a, a neurotransmitter in and of itself. Um, the, the drug class that GHB is in, it was discovered in the late 19th century, but they didn't really do formal research. It's not well reported in the literature until about the 1960s or so. And at that stage, they were using it. They were trying to figure out what they, they should use it for. And they said so they used it as an anesthetic agent, as a dietary supplement of all things, um, as a sleep aid um, and as an aphrodisiac. Um, and so it's been used for a, a number of uh, things over the years from, for, for medical purposes. Uh, and these days it's used extraordinarily rarely. I think that in Australia, I'm, I'm not aware of it being used uh, for, a medical, uh, for medical purposes. But I think that in some places overseas, they do still use G and its analogues in management of things like sort of sleep disorders um, and certain other conditions. Um, it's really similar to another couple of substances and it might almost be unable to be differentiated uh, between... Uh, uh, if, sorry, most people would struggle to differentiate between um, GHB, uh, gamma hydroxybutyrate or gamma hydroxybutyric acid, and uh, a couple of its precursors, GBL, gamma butyrolactone, and 1,4-butanediol, 1,4-BD. Um, and the tough thing about this is that like, they all have really similar effects, like GBL and 1,4-BD are broken down in the body to GHB. Uh, they, all, they all come as uh, colourless liquids, and... Um, so they're yeah, going to give you similar effects. So if someone is buying something, they think it's G, uh, how do they know it's going to be GHB? Well, you really don't um, unless you test it. There are some things that will differentiate somewhat. Um, GHB is described as being sort of a having a sort of salty kind of soapy sort of taste. Uh, GBL 
is described as having a uh, sort of stale water or burnt plastic kind of taste. And 1,4-BD is described as being a bit more bitter. But I wouldn't rely on that sort of smell or taste differentiation because different people have different um, taste buds and different um, sensations of smell, um, but also because uh, potentially people have mixed these things, potentially they've manufactured them poorly and they've got other things in them that smell or taste bitter. Um, so unless something's been tested, I'm not going to say it's definitely one or the other. But the reason why it's, import it's important to know that is because, for example, if you're used to taking GHB and you all of a sudden get uh, GBL or 1,4-BD, um, they're likely to come on more quickly and they are also likely to be more potent for the same volume. Um, again, keeping in mind that you don't know what concentration you got your G in. So um, people should always just be cautious, um, particularly if they're trying some uh, and they haven't tried it before or if they're trying some for a new batch or from a new deal or anything like that because it might not be what you got before and it might have different effects. So again, starting low, going slow and being cautious uh, with, with dose, et cetera. Um, in terms of what they do, um, now these ones act on a, another slightly different receptor. Uh, it's kind of the opposite of the NMDA receptor. So as we said, the NMDA receptor increases the likelihood that nerve cells are gonna be triggered by any neurochemicals that come in their way. Whereas the GABA receptor, it sort of um, inhibits the likelihood that a nerve cell is gonna be triggered if a, neuro, uh, a neurotransmitter comes along. So it sort of relaxes and chills things down um, in, in a similar but not identical to way to what happens when you block the NMDA receptor. Um, and so once the uh, GABA receptor is activated, uh, it probably also has an impact on dopamine release, um, and that's why you get that euphoria and the potential for dependence, and it does have a smaller impact on serotonin release as well. Uh, um, in terms of people feel, so people describe feeling like euphoric, like happy, um, sort of that uh, sort of yeah, tingle up the spine, uh, enjoyable sensation, feeling relaxed, feeling disinhibited. People sometimes feel themselves uh, find themselves doing things sort of um, uh, just just in terms of their actions um, in general or socially or sexually they might not have done if they weren't on G. Uh, it does have an aphrodisiac dysiac effect. In fact, at low doses it enhances erectile function and it decreases erectile function at higher doses. This sort of strange um, biphasic effect. These are the desired effects that people have. Um, from a side effects point of view, though, it can uh, the the more uh, serious ones that people people worry about. It causes drowsiness, decreased um, level of consciousness, particularly in higher doses. It'll decrease your coordination and make you feel a bit dizzy, potentially, and unsteady on your feet. It'll lower your blood pressure and your temperature and your heart rate. It can cause people to, um, if they're particularly, if they've had a, a fair amount, uh, lose control of their bowels or their bladder, feel sick in the tummy and vomit. Some people get confused, agitated or irritated on it. There's this kind of classical G reaction that people will sometimes get where they sort of go from being sort of like quite agitated and um, maybe a bit confused and, and uh, really quite stirred up to then being just completely unconscious. And then you sort of stimulate them and you sort of try to wake them up and get them to breathe again. They'll sort of come to and they'll again be really quite confusing, confused. That's that's the sort of presentation I, I guess I, I would have seen most commonly in when I see someone who's acutely G intoxicated. Um, and the, probably the, the most concerning thing about G is that the dose range between a safe and a toxic dose is really very narrow. So the difference between having enough to make you feel the positive effects you want to feel and stopping breathing and dying, there's not actually that much of a um, of a window there. So people need to be really quite cautious about dosing, again, starting low, going slow, like waiting for something to kick in before you add anything else in, and particularly with G, not combining it with other sedative drugs, um, alcohol and uh, benzos and, and things like um, 
yeah, your things like that, uh, because the combination, like that's that's where most people really get in trouble. They'll have a few al- drinks of alcohol on board, and then they'll have some gin on top of it at their usual dose, and then they'll just go down because you've got the mix there as well. Um, yeah, that's G. One thing I did want to, one reason I did want to talk about G was because just anecdotally, like over the last few months since lockdown's been happening, I've seen a couple of people who've, for whatever reason, started taking G to pass their time and ended up quite dependent on it so it's you don't frequently see it but it can be really really dangerous if someone ends up dependent on it because it doesn't last for a long period of time people are typically taking like a meal or two every hour or two to keep themselves on the same level but then if they stop using it it can make you feel really like really agitated anxious confused trembly sweaty and it can make you have seizures and can make you really really sick so um long and the short of it is that yeah, if you're taking it, like, d- d- try not to use it too frequently so you end up with a, with a dependence. If you find that you're using it more frequently and you're struggling to cut back, like, don't just pretend, like, I'd, I'd, I'd suggest don't try and do it yourself at home. Like, seek help. Go Get in touch with your local drug drug health treatment service or, or with Noor or someone who can get you linked in there or with DanceWise um, so they can get you referred on to someone so that if you're taking it frequently and you want to come off it, you can get that, you can get help to do that in a safe and comfortable environment. Awesome. So we've had quite a lot more questions come through and we are reaching about the end of our stream. So I'll maybe, maybe two or three of these out mm-hmm. quickly and possibly there might be some time to get to some more in the comments after the stream. Mm-hmm. Um, so we've had a question here from Erica asking, what is the best way to take a safe dose? Isn't G really dose sensitive? Yeah, yeah, yes it is. Thanks Erica. Hi Erica. Um, so it's, it is, and it's tough because, like, I mean, G in its natural form, it's a powder, um, so it gets dissolved in liquid. Um, and so, if you know exactly how much powder you have as um, as pure G, then you're you, you, you're kind of golden because you can dose regulate really well. But if you are having it then dissolved and it's being sold in liquid, who knows what concentration of of G is there? Um, so it's it's really difficult, and because. And as you say, different people have different sensitivities to to G as they do with many other substances. And so, um, yeah, like it's it, one person might have the the dose that they've had a million times before, and another person might have that dose and just go down. Um, there are complex reasons why that happens. Some people have different recept- neurotransmitters, different receptors in their brains that mediate that. Some people metabolize it, so break it down um, more or less quickly. Some people, if you've used it frequently, develop a tolerance to it so they can tolerate more. Um, but yeah, so you're right. It's really dose uh, dose sensitive. Sorry, it's, it's quite dose sensitive. Um, it, do, doses are variable um, and, and change over time. My understanding is that there's more GBL. Look, and and I, I, could, I could be wrong on this. I believe that there's uh, quite a bit of GBL floating around in Australia. But yeah, you don't know if you're getting G, HB, GBL or 1,4-BD. Um, you don't know what concentration it is. It's really difficult to provide general dosing advice. So, I mean, I'd suggest having a bit of a read through the articles that are on Erowid, um, if you if you have time, because that will describe it much better than I can. I'm not going to provide like specific like this many mils dosing advice because there, there are too many variables to be able to safely do so. But I'd, I'd strongly recommend having a look on there. Um, same rules, going, starting low, going slow, avoiding uh, combinations of da- dangerous combinations of drugs and doing it with friends, taking care of your mates. Um, yeah, particularly if someone's starting out with something for the first time, like really starting low, going slow. Definitely. I might just add to that as well. A lot of people, I think, use soy fish, so the little soy sauce containers you sometimes get with sushi um, to measure out their G doses. And a lot of people don't know that you can actually freely access 
three mil and five mil barrels, alpha dosing GHB, and dance wise at festivals or from NSPs around the around the state. So it's a really good idea to get your hands on a measuring syringe that definitely would not dose it in any other mm. way. Strongly agree. And please, please, please don't put it in a bottle where it might be confused with someone else. Like myself and other colleagues have seen people like, yeah, go to their house. Someone stays over, go to the fridge in the middle of the night, take a swig from a bottle, end up unconscious on the floor because it was not water, it was GHB. So like diet and put it separate to your other liquids, please. Um, blue is the color that is most commonly used. Indeed. Okay, so we're gonna take our last question on G and then we'll do one more question after that and then we'll wrap up the stream. So the last question on G is, aside from potential for overdose, would you say GHB or alcohol is more harmful for the body and brain? Great question. Um, yeah, really good question. Uh, okay, cop out answer, it depends. It depends on many, many things. But I, I, I think the point you're probably trying to make is like, would it be safer maybe to have, I don't know, a beer or two or to have enough G to get you to the same sort of level of experience, level of what, what you're experiencing? Um, that is a really difficult question to answer. Um, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm going to have to take that one on notice. Like I, and I'll get back to you on it. I'm not aware of any direct comparisons. Like, um, however, if it was like a small amount and there was, we're talking absolutely no combination with other drugs, no, no risk of overdose, um, someone's up and about and I guess pleasantly intoxicated but not suffering other harms, would the potentially harmful effects of alcohol outweigh those of G? I don't know. It's a good question. Thank you. Sorry I can't answer it just there now, but I will look it up and get back to people. Too easy. Um, it is an interesting question and I've had a lot of people ask as well. And I think mm. there is some info out there, so hopefully we can get to that sometime. I've had similar questions asked about, um, like, uh, asked about MDMA. Like, I mean, um, yeah, like, is it safer for me to, I don't know, take MDMA, I don't know, a few times a year or to um, have alcohol a few times a year if I'm not getting really high and I'm not ending up in hospital? And yeah, like the interesting comparisons to, to make, particularly when we see that there are studies being done for people give, being given 120 to 180 milligrams of MDMA in a controlled setting um, and and doctors and psychotherapists considering that to be a relatively safe thing. It's, um yeah, these comparisons are difficult to make, but I think it's important to ask the questions because it... Yeah, calls into question, right, the um, the unusual, strange reasons why the laws around substances are the way that they are. Indeed. Mm. Cool. And the final question we'll do, it's a bit of a doozy, is, mm. is there a link between psychedelics and schizophrenia? Mm. That is a good question. I thought you were going to ask me the other question, which is about um, why do some people experience the I am everything type experience with DMT while some do not? <laughs> so I prepared for that one. I feel free to also. Yeah, um, that's, a, that's a great question. While I'm thinking about the psychedelics and schizophrenia one, because look, I mean, there's, yes, yes, there's a link. I mean, is it a causative link? Like, um, um, I, 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 let, let me let me think through my response to that while I talk about um, the other question, if that's okay. Um, I'm mindful yeah. of people, I'm taking people's time up. Um, yeah. Someone asked, yeah, like, 
some people experience this like I am everything type experience with DMT. Some people don't, and they've they've posited that it's not dose dose related. So what's going on? Um, and the sort of experience they're talking about is like in the literature, it's described as sort of ego dissolution, ego death, ego loss. This sort of loss of sensation of where you end and where everything else begins. Um, and some have suggested that it's similar to sort of near death experiences. And they've actually gone on with like some fascinating research to develop like this near death experience um, score inventory and this ego dissolution inventory. And so they've gone through and they've actually given people DMT um, and they've given uh, the same people at a different time placebo and established how many of these people experience ego loss, how many of these people experience a near death experience. Um, one interesting thing about that study was that one of the people given placebo experienced ego death, which is like, I mean, amazing, like really, really powerful placebo. And that person was obviously having, a, having an exciting day. Um, but uh, in a general sense, like pretty much everyone who had the, had DMT during that experiment, I think it was only 16 people, experienced what people would describe as ego death or ego dissolution. Um, look, I would argue that it is dose related, certainly to an extent, like if someone has a tiny amount of DMT, they're much less likely to experience ego death than if they are sort of overwhelmed by a, a large amount of it. Um, but they, uh, the research that they did on on this, uh, I think this was back in 2016 or so, um, they, they established that um, there's a really strong link between people's uh, personalities, people's pre-existing personality and their experience with any type of psychedelics. So I'm going to extrapolate from any type of psychedelics to specifically DMT here. So it's probably related to people's personality. Set and setting, I guess, is like the way that, some would describe it, but I think it goes deeper than that. Like, cause I mean, setting is where you are, like what, what, what is around you? What's, what's going on at that particular period of time. But set, I think to me, like partly refers to what's happening in someone's mind at that stage. Are you anxious? Are you in a good place psychologically? What's your mindset? Personality is even deeper than that. Personality is a combination of like, um, what like it's a combination of your genetics and your sort of intrinsic inherent personality traits that are like quite fixed and not changing over a long period of time. And so if you're someone who has a specific type of personality, you might be slightly less likely to experience ego death than if you have a different type of personality. So again, I'll put this in the references, but it, it is dose related to a certain extent, um, but the rest of it is partly set, partly setting, but probably um, personality is the other factor that, that impacts that, I think. Yeah. Fantastic. Um, and yeah, if you have any ideas about the schizophrenia link. Uh, yeah, look, schizo schizophrenia and um, and psychedelics, like, interestingly, very few, and this is probably a good thing, I think, like, very few people using psychedelic drugs come through drug health services uh, with problems related to their substance use, which, I mean, like, yeah, perhaps that speaks to um, the potential harms associated with psychedelics. Um, but I do, like, I ask all of my patients if they see in GP land about substance use and a number of them speak about um, using psychedelics and sort of, yeah, like anecdotally the link isn't there. Now, the thing is though, that we know that people who have schizophrenia are far more likely to use psychoactive substances, be it alcohol or illicit drugs <clears throat> or prescribed medications um, than the rest of the population. So do people with psychosis or schizophrenia use um, hallucinogens more than people who don't have schizophrenia? Yes. Um, that that seems to be the case. Uh, that's that's a link. It's um, I don't know. Like maybe there's a there's a, a causative element there, but there's certainly an association. But if someone who wasn't predisposed to um, developing schizophrenia 
uses a psychedelic, will they then go on to develop it? The link, like, there is some evidence that suggests that, yeah, like, um, use of psychedelics can trigger psychosis and people might then, like, you hear about people and it's, like, not used these days, I guess, but, like, bad trips, like, challenging experiences, um, people who never never recover from them and have flashbacks and these sorts of things. And so um, does that necessarily mean that they develop schizophrenia? As far as I'm aware, the evidence for that is not particularly strong. Um, I mean, there is some research suggesting that there's a link there, but I, I'm, I'm not sure that the evidence is particularly strong saying that if you take psychedelics, you're, you're at greater likelihood to end up uh, with psychosis or schizophrenia um, if you weren't going to anyway. Fantastic. That's a brilliant answer. It's probably a bit of a cop-out answer, really, um, but I'm going to do a bit more reading on it and I'll present uh, any references that I find back there as well. Brilliant. So we have just finished up for the hour. So I'd like to say goodbye to you, Dr. Rob. Thanks for having me, mate. Indeed. And also I'd just like to say a big thanks to everyone who tuned in and a massive thanks, of course, to you, Dr. Rob. Um, if you can, please try and spread some of the knowledge you've gained tonight to others in the community and do some more research on anything you found interesting. It's up to us as a community to keep fighting stigma and discrimination and end the war against people who use drugs. Again, many thanks and much love to all who tuned in. We'll hopefully catch you at a music festival sometime not too far away. Have a wonderful evening. All right, and that's it for the conversation with um, Adam and Dr. Rob a couple of months back. Um, yeah, just a reminder that that was kind of quite a few months ago now, so there might be some new research emerged since then or some updated information. Um, and you can yeah. find that in the description of the podcast. Um, there'll be some links to the research Rob was referring to. And you can also find more information on the Dansize New South Wales website, info about drugs, resources, and links to other services you might uh, want or need. Mm -hmm. That's www.dancewisensw.org.au. That's the one. I yep. believe. Yep. Um, cool. Yeah, so head there for more info. As Adam said, description for all your links and uh, resources and research and whatnot. Um, um, if you think that anything that we've spoken about in today's episode might be handy or useful for any of your friends or family members or community members, please share this around. This is really, really valuable information and we just want as many people as possible to know about it and use it and be safe. Yeah. So tell a friend, keep them safe too. Yeah. Yeah, we really hope you guys enjoyed this first episode. Yeah, let us know what you think. Let us know. You can reach out to us in a number of ways. Um, how can they do that, Adam? Um, <laughs> you can talk to us on social media. Um, Monday to Friday, we'll be there on Facebook Messenger and Instagram DMs. So if yeah. you want to have a chat to us about anything drug-related, partying-related, harm reduction, we're there for it. Yeah, please talk to us. And we look, we can talk to you about pretty much anything. Like, we want to be able to... Um, you know, chat about yeah. If you're having a tough come down, if you've got a friend who's struggling to integrate a psychedelic experience, um, if you've got questions about drug combos, what to look out for when yeah, combining certain substances. Um, yeah, we're here to chat about all of that from a peer harm reduction perspective. So yeah, hit us up there, or you can also give us a call if you need a bit of a you know personal touch to it um, on one eight hundred six double four. 413. That's one 800 644 413
Yeah. And keep listening. We're going to be putting out more episodes. You can listen um, pretty much anywhere on our website. We're going to be putting them up on Spotify, on Apple Podcasts. Um, yeah, pretty much yeah. anywhere you get your podcast from, it should be there. If not, yeah. You we're can always w- go to the, the big old Spotify. Yeah, we're working on it. We're doing our best. <laughs> um, cool. All right. We'll catch you guys soon. Oh, and don't forget, as always, to like, share, and subscribe. Or something <laughs> like that. <laughs> we're professional podcasters. <laughs> Look at us go. Bye.